Hello, and welcome to episode three of OTTB on Tap. I'm Neve, and I'm Emily. Today, we're going to walk through the OTTB market buyer's guide. Hopefully some of these tips will help those here that are new to buying OTTBs or horses really in general, and maybe even experienced buyers can get some helpful info as well. This 10-step guide is based on a template I created for myself when I began shopping for horses as a teenager, and I refined it when I started shopping for OTTBs on the backside of the track. I'd see so many horses in a day, like sometimes 10, maybe more, and I really wanted to find a way to keep all those horses straight. So we've created a template of that form for you all to download and use as well. You can download this guide at ottbmarket.com. Before we get started on the buyer's guide, is there anything that people need to do or consider before starting their search for an OTTB? Yes, something that I once mentioned prior to starting really should be the number one rule here. Before you start shopping for a horse or an OTTB in particular, make sure you're prepared. And what does that mean? Well, first things first, make sure that you truly have the money to buy and support an OTTB. You know, typically horses right off the track or soon after they're off the track are a little bit lower priced end of the spectrum than maybe some other breeds or types of horses. But keep in mind that their upkeep is definitely at least as much as other horses, if not sometimes more. They generally need plenty of high quality grain and hay. They usually require four shoes at least to start. That should not really be considered maintenance or extra. Like that is what they're used to. Doesn't mean you can't transition some of them, but they're gonna need four shoes. Let's just put that in your budget. And oftentimes they require more blankets in the winter, especially their first winter off the track. And I hate to say it, but sometimes they can be a little bit more accident prone for a little bit. And they may require things like ulcer medication, which can also be quite expensive. So make sure that you have the budget to kind of not only cover the purchase price, but all of these additional expenses. A second point of discussion would be to Uh, discuss bringing your new horse into your life with your significant other, your trainer, and maybe your parents if you're under the age of 18. You'd be shocked how many sales will fall through because the person will come out and really love the horse or you fall in love with the horse and then you go home and realize that, well, we don't really have the budget for this, honey, or what do you mean you're getting a horse, et cetera, et cetera. So really think about if you've spoken to everybody in your life that might be impacted by bringing a new horse home and making sure that everyone's sort of signing off on it, so to speak. Well, you could also just make sure that they're all the same color and size and hope for, hope they don't notice. Right, exactly. <laughs> just get all plain bays and stick them in a field. And so, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that one get there? <laughs> and then the other thing is to really take a close look at yourself, your riding ability, the amount of time you're going to have available to work with a, a new horse off the track. Think about whether or not your experience level really plays into whether you should be getting and off the track thoroughbred in the first place. And by that, I mean, you know, have you ridden green horses before? Have you taught them the, the firsts of a lot of different things that these horses might not know um, when you first start riding them and working with them? Having OTTP experience is not crucial, but it is very important depending on the type of horses that you're looking at. And it's just really important to think hard about the type of rider you are, the amount of time and money commitments that you might have available to you and how that's going to play into 
the kinds of horses that you should be looking at. And then the final kind of group of things you need to really evaluate is where are you going to keep this horse? Do you have an appropriate boarding situation or if you're lucky enough, your own farm set up with staff that knows how to handle a fresh off the track thoroughbred? Do you have the ability to help transition the horse off the track to regular turnout? Meaning do you have a round pen or a small paddock for the first days, weeks, months, as that horse gets used to more freedom? What type of hay and feed do you have available to you? How about your farrier? Have they ever helped transition off track thoroughbreds feet before? And then lastly, how are you going to get the horse home? If you haven't had these discussions with your barn manager, farrier, and even your vet, now is the time. Another small little piece of information here is to find out for sure if your barn has a strict no off-the-track thoroughbred policy. That probably sounds weird for a lot of people, but as someone who lived in Philadelphia when I got back into riding horses, all of the surrounding farms that I found closest to the city would absolutely not consider taking an off-the-track thoroughbred. Now, I think it was for a lot of poor stereotypes for the most part, but that was just a policy that they had, and that was a real bummer because that meant I would have to drive twice as far to see any horse that I was going to buy. So you definitely ask all the questions, and then you'll feel better supported when you go in to look at your first horse. Yep, it makes you a better buyer as well, which is something we want to really help you with. So once you have all of that figured out, let's get started. All right, so step one here is general information. And I know that this sounds kind of obvious, but believe me, it's no fun when you're thinking back through the horses that you've seen and maybe you mix up names or their trainers or their owners or you can't find contact info easily. Make sure that you write down all the basic stats. The horse's jockey club name, if they have a barn name, which often they don't right off the track, but sometimes they do. The trainer and owner name and contact info, location of the horse. Now we are kind of gearing this towards you going to the track to look at the horse, but this could also apply to, you know, horses that have already left the track. But if it's still at the track, the barn number and stall number are very helpful. And of course, the price. I also like to note the color, size, and gender of the horse. Make sure that if you think it's a gelding, it really is a gelding. And, you know, make sure to snap a couple quick pics of the horse too to go along with all that. Yeah, and I think when you're, especially if you're looking on the backside, or even if you're going to a reseller that has a lot of horses to look at, you know, their time is extremely valuable. And so the more prepared you are, the better you're going to be in that short period of time that somebody has to show you horses. So if you can be really thorough, ask the right questions and, you know, don't get bogged down in the minutia, it's going to make the experience good for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So step two, our first impressions. Is it love at first sight or is it kind of eh? really pay attention to how you feel when you see the horse? I'm really big on that. And as an old mentor of mine, Jimmy Wofford loved to say was that you should buy a horse with whom you fall in love with again every morning when you see his face hanging over the stall door waiting for breakfast. He often said you'll make excuses for a horse that you love. And I really think and, and know that that is true. This is also a fantastic time to take note of anything that stands out positively or negatively when you first see the horse. Does it pin its ears at the horse in the next stall? Does it respect its handler? 
On that note, don't be alarmed to see horses at the track and fresh off the track led with chains over the nose, through the mouth, under their lip, etc. This is totally normal. Keep in mind, these are high octane, totally fit large animals. If they misbehave or worse, get loose on the backside of the track or when they first come to the farm, it can become a highly dangerous situation. Another thing to note here is very common for horses to wear wraps or bandages after work at workouts at the track, often with poultice or some sort of, you know, medicated something under them. And this is usually not a cause for alarm, though you can certainly take note of this. Make sure that you are able to inspect the horse's legs without wraps on prior to actually purchasing it. But I've certainly had situations where I show up to look at horse number one and the trainer's like, oh wait, but I've got horse number two, but he's already been done up for the evening. And naturally they're resistant to pulling the wraps off in that situation. So not necessarily a red flag, but just something to keep in mind. And I think another thing to just sort of add in here, and, and I've definitely noticed from being on the backside is that just because a horse is wrapped up doesn't mean that anything happened that day. In fact, yeah. some of the best owners at the track, you'll walk down the, the shed row and every horse will either be iced or poulticed and wrapped and in a stall with straw up to its knees and a big bag of hay and just happy as a clam because they just do it for every horse every time every workout and I think it's a good discipline when you see that every horse in the barn is happy as a clam and being treated like kings oh absolutely yeah awesome so step three is confirmation so there's so much we could talk about here about confirmation there are tons of books and articles out there on this subject and To be honest, I'm sure we'll probably have a lot of information on this in upcoming episodes, but make sure that you are confident in evaluating basic confirmation qualities and flaws before tackling horse shopping on your own. If you need to, ask an experienced friend or trainer to come along with you if you need help. It really doesn't have to be complicated though. First thing is to look at the overall proportion of the horse. Do all the pieces seem to fit together in a pleasing picture? Or does something seem off? Is the neck too short or too long? Is the back way longer than the neck or shorter? Are the hindquarters too small for the body? Or conversely, you know, like are the hindquarters super overpowered and the shoulder looks really small? So really just kind of stand back and get that overall view to start. Next, I always like to look at the horse's legs from both the sides and the front and the back. Ideally, they will be uniform and straight without excess lumps and bumps, but I do like to run my hands down each leg and pick it up. You can tell a lot about a horse by how flexible their fetlocks are, which sounds kind of weird. I'm not saying to actually put any pressure on the horse's leg or do any sort of flexion tests or put any strain on them, but just feel for range of motion, how easy it is for them to pick up their leg and to bend their ankles. I think it's also important to note here that if you've had horses in your past, even if you, this is going to be your very first horse, you should know in a general way what a normal leg feels like. Every horse's leg feels different in its own way, but the ligaments, the structure, the the bits and pieces of it are essentially the same. So having some idea of what a normal leg should feel like is definitely a good starting point to know what feels maybe a little funny. And yep. also maybe to add in here, there's a lot of sort of old practices that are still done on many tracks that might be a little alarming to look at on a horse's leg that really don't mean anything at all. And we'll probably get into this at a, def- a different time, but 
we're talking about things like blistering and, and pin firing and things that aesthetically look like something, but maybe don't mean much at all in, in terms of the internal structure of the, the legs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something to be great if you have a good relationship with your vet. And if you don't, you should start one. You know, when they're out doing something routine, maybe just ask them for their advice about, you know, how to evaluate leg confirmation or what what the horse's leg should feel like when you run your hands down it and just practice. Right. What a normal reaction to you running your hand down the leg and what an unnormal reaction is, <laughs> you know. Some horses like are sensitive to palpation of any kind just because they're just sensitive creatures, just like humans might be more ticklish than one another and things like that. So definitely having a baseline of normal is a great place to start. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny on this topic. I I remember one of the very first horses I think I looked at, at the track, I showed up and it was not bandaged. It was a very, very nice looking horse. It was like a normal temperature day. It wasn't super hot or super cold. And I was running my hands all over the horse and he felt normal. And I got to his legs and his legs were ice cold. Like, so cold. They were dry, but they were so, so cold. And I was like, that seems weird. It just didn't match with the rest of the horse. And his legs look fine. I ended up not buying them for, I probably for other reasons. But interestingly, years later, I ran back into that horse and found out that he'd had several soft tissue injuries. I have no idea if that's correlated, but it seemed pretty clear to me that he'd been kind of iced in preparation for someone coming to look at them. So just pay attention to those little things. And then lastly, feet we haven't talked about yet. That's a whole nother issue, but in an ideal world, they would be matching pairs without excess toe and with some heel. As you will find, many, many, many thoroughbreds are shod with a long toe and a low, te- a low heel, but the feet should have a concave sole and a solid hoof wall. Keep in mind that great farrier, time, and good nutrition can do a lot to turn the hoof around. And don't be shy about taking photos of the feet if you don't already have them. Just take your own photos and show them to your farrier and say, listen, I love the horse. Is this something you feel like we can work with? And your farrier will have great feedback for you if they're familiar and experienced with working with off-the-track thoroughbreds. So If you're in love with the horse and the feet are just a little bit of a question mark, definitely talk to your farrier. They're going to be able to tell you. But by picking up the hoof, you can tell a lot too. But honestly, the feet are going to change so much in the first year that you're just going to have to dedicate the time and patience into uh, turning that foot around. (laughs) No pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, and then on your sheet or on your phone or however you're kind of taking notes, make note of anything that stands out for you you as far as confirmation and the horse's hooves and also i was a little taken aback by how willing most of the trainers were to admit any little blip that had occurred when the horse was working the chatty trainers will tell you a lot and if you're willing to just listen and talk to them sometimes they'll just be like ah you know like he doesn't really love this or like he likes this or you know sometimes he came up a little sore on this knee and you haven't asked anything And so if any of that stuff just gets volunteered to you, make a note of it so that if you do decide to go forward with the vetting, you might have a little area that you want to look at. But you also have to keep in mind that a lot of these trainers have a lot of horses and they might confuse a horse with another in the barn. So they might say, oh, I came back a little sore on this knee. And then you x-ray the knee and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. 
and they're just they're just kind of doing their part to sort of help you out as much as they can but you have to take everything that they say with a little bit of a grain of salt and do your own due diligence on your end yeah absolutely i mean i think it's for anybody does high volume anything but it's also definitely buyer beware you know it's it's your opportunity to make sure that everything is within your parameters and your acceptable level of risk and if the trainer does come back with something that you thought was maybe a little bit of a question mark you could write it down and say oh i'm going to look at the race record and see if it had a long break or maybe you can just ask them right there did the horse have any time off because of that injury and and again it's not to rule out a horse in any kind of way but it's just a sort of starting point of these are some things i might want to consider in whether or not this is the right horse for me yeah absolutely so the next step after evaluating confirmation and just kind of running your hands all over the horse, down the legs, et cetera, is you need to watch it move. So if you're actually at the track, depending on what time you get there, this can be a little bit tricky. I've definitely been in situations where one horse coming out of its stall at a time that's not normal will set off the entire barn. So something to think about and maybe discuss before you set the time that you're going to actually go see the horse and make sure that they are able to accommodate you. It really is paramount, however, that you are able to observe the horse walk and jog in hand on a straight line in, on firm footing. Now, nowadays, lots of trainers actually have this on video, so you can watch prior to seeing the horse in person or if you're buying sight unseen. But I always like to try to see it in person if I can at all. And then something that's even more tricky would be, if at all possible, try to observe the horse either loose, lunging, or under saddle. Or maybe even getting to the track early and seeing the horse do a workout. Yes. You know, when you see the horses when they're done with their workout and they're sort of trotting on a loose rein and walking, you can sort of tell a lot from that. Or maybe even just looking at some of their videos of their old races and just seeing what they do when they're not working if you don't have the opportunity to see them loose. Right. Or lunging or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it'd be very difficult at most tracks to see them loose or lunging. Like Neve said, sometimes you can catch a workout. Depends on the barn, the trainer, and timing because they're certainly not going to wait around for you. (laughs) Another point to make here is that the trainers aren't available from... 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. They're kind of available from 4 a.m. until 10 a.m. And you might get to the track and there's no one there to even show you the horses necessarily. The horses are kind of done for the day. So you're definitely thinking about what the trainer's schedule is like and when they're going to be available to you, like Emily said, makes a big difference when you're taking time away from their day. Yeah, for sure. And like Neve touched upon, especially if the horse has won a race or two or three or however many in the past, you can look up their old race videos. Um, you don't typically see very much unless they've won or placed kind of high in the race. Um, if they have won, usually if you keep watching the video, you'll get to see the the winning horse at least pull up um, and then usually travel to the winner's circle at a canner or, or trot and or both. And that is some great information to give you an idea of how the horse moves. Just a little bit more information about its personality sometimes. Right, because it's just come off of a big win. It might be very full of adrenaline, but then you see these jockeys just put them on a soft rein and trot them over to the to the winner's circle. And I feel like you can glean a lot of information about what the horse might be like in a different career in a way. And then a little bit of a plug here. 
This is also a major advantage of buying from a reseller is that you get a lot more material to evaluate the horse with. That's where you generally can see the horse maybe move loose in the ring or paddock. Maybe you get to see it free jump. Um, maybe you get to see it go under saddle. Maybe you even get to ride it. You will never get to ride a horse at the track. Yeah, it's... don't show up in your britches. <laughs> Just don't do it. It's actually not legal. So <laughs> you would need a license in order to do that. So don't even ask, basically. Right. Very occasionally you'll see somebody who's like, oh, I'll just hop on this one and like walk it back from the walker or something. But it's just not going to happen. You're really not going to see it written in that kind of way on in, in an on-demand sort of setting. Right. Neve, I'll ask you this question. <laughs> what do you look for in a walk or jog in hand when you're evaluating a horse at the track? You know, I think I've watched... <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these videos at this stage because we're just constantly sending them back and forth to each other. I'm pretty good at overlooking the shenanigans and a lot of the trainers will even say, listen, this one hasn't worked, you know, in a couple days or whatever. We pulled it right out of the stall and they're a little high on life. They're a little fit or whatever. I try to see if generally if it has a nice walk, that's, that's something that you can you can actually tell at the track. The ones that have an exceptional walk at the track will usually have a very nice canter under saddle. Once you see a horse trotting, that's where sort of the wheels can come off a little bit in terms of visually assessing the horse. But I think it's really important to realize that these horses are extreme athletes. And so if you're seeing this tight hawk movement, you can ignore that because that's just a, a condition of them being an athlete at the track. I like to see if the horse is willing to just sort of stride out a little bit maybe show off a little bit. I like a horse that has that little bit of a pizzazz factor. But one of the most important things that Emily ever taught me was that if I was ever having sort of a question mark feeling or, oh, I don't know if this horse really truly seems sound enough, close your eyes and listen to the hoof falls because that will tell you a lot more about what the horse is sort of doing on a soundness level versus visually watching it when it's kind of hopping all around and maybe the person that's trotting it has never had to trot the horse in hand before. Also, these horses don't trot in hand. So you're asking it to do something <laughs> it doesn't want to do. It's race fit. Someone's probably chasing it with a plastic bag. And then, it, you know, it's breaking into the canter in three strides. Emily and I have literally purchased horses off of five strides of trot. High as a kite, five strides of trot because there's just something intangible quality that you can just sort of see or hear that that makes you go, yes, I want to go forward with this horse. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, definitely look for the walk. That really big swinging walk with, a, with an overstep is one of the most attractive factors to me. With the exception of a couple of truly exceptional, exceptional horses, I was generally happy if I liked the horse's confirmation and the horse sounded sound to me right. because like, I know that the trot is going to change a ton once they get off the track and, you know, get to loosen up a little bit. But if you see something and you ask a follow-up question, trust your gut, you know, if they can take a bad step, they can step on a rock or whatever. So maybe if they take a bad step, say, could you, could I just see it go one more time? And I think that most trainers will allow that, but I would say that there are some things that would definitely make me just move on. And, and those would be a big lameness that you just weren't willing to like go down a rabbit hole over. So 
Yeah, and sometimes you can just tell they're super body sore. Yeah. Tight all over. And that might be more than you're willing to deal with. It depends on a lot of factors. The other thing, if you can, you want to see if you can evaluate the horse walking and trotting towards you and away from you. That way you can look for any paddling or winging of the hooves to one side or the other, which is has never been a deal breaker for me, but it's something I certainly would want to know. And some can sometimes be worked with, with corrective farrier oh, work yeah. as well. And actually that brings up a good point because we talked about kind of looking all around the horse when it was standing or seeing it in photos. And that brings up some interesting confirmation points in terms of like towing in, towing out and things like that. Yeah. That, you know, look up those terms, read about them and find out if those are things that are going to be big deal breakers for you. Um, I think for the two of us, that's not necessarily the biggest deal in the entire world, but they are things to think about and they can be adjusted over time, but maybe not completely taken away. Yeah, that definitely depends upon your intended purpose. And then another thing I think Neve brought up, but 99% of the time, the horse jumping around or misbehaving while you're trying to jog it does not have any impact on me whatsoever. I think it's actually, you know considered normal now if the horse is downright dangerous where it's just like rearing and striking dragging the person yeah i might pass on that one but if it's a cult there can be some major change there once they're gelded so keep that in mind as well but yeah i mean if it's downright dangerous probably no but anything short of that usually gets easier once they leave the track a kind of a funny side note here is I think it's really fun to see horses that are on a walker in a group because you get to sort of get a little insight into their personalities. And there's a couple of good resellers throughout the United States that will often just show funny videos of their horses and be like, which one do you think's the quiet one on the track? And which one do you think's the wild one? And it'll be five horses on a walker. And you just kind of see what they do when they're sort of tethered and stuck. And they're just kind of cooling off after a breeze or a workout or whatever. And you can get a little sense of their personalities in a way. And I think like the more you watch these horses do what they do at the track, you get a little bit of a better sense of what's normal at the track. And you can evaluate them a little bit more clearly, I think. Yeah, for sure. Another reason why sometimes it's easier to buy them if you're a little bit less experienced, maybe shell out a couple extra bucks and buy one after they've been transitioned by a competent or experienced person yeah i mean we had a we had a a colt that was what i think like a half a million dollar yearling or two-year-old and i mean just a hunk of a horse who had been going through a little bit of a layup and was quite studdish when we got him home and he got gelded and that horse went from big shot to puppy it was (laughs) wild to see just how and that doesn't always happen but it it's kind of amazing kind of nice when it does when the brain surgery works i actually kind of wished we got like pictures and video of him before he was gelded because he was so puffed up he definitely kind of lost that spark but he became a phenomenal amateur mount so something i would not have guessed from meeting him when he was a cult not at all and that does not always happen but it has happened enough that it's certainly something that you can take into account all right next up we have race performance this is step five so when you're talking to the trainer oh just just a uh, jump in real quick 
I want to say, look up the race performance before you get there. Yes. I think that's what you're kind of about to get into a little bit, but just have your details sort of queued up a little bit ahead of time so that you can just ask thoughtful questions when you're in the presence of the trainer. Yeah. Why don't you continue with that? Oh, no. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. Go on. Go on. Sorry. No, it's fine. (laughs) So, you know, these records are available to anybody. If you have the jockey club name, you can look up the horse and go through. You can see how many times they've raced. Some people like a horse that's raced a lot. Some people like a horse that hasn't raced that much. You know, there's a lot of people that rave about war horses. But the biggest thing that Emily taught me over the years was to... Look for gaps in the record. You'd like a horse to have raced very regularly. It is a bit of a red flag to me if they've raced every week. <laughs> yeah. What would you think is a normal or a like every two weeks, every three weeks on on the same track? And then if they're on multiple tracks, there might be two to three month breaks in between because they might have to get certain conditions to be able to race on different tracks. So you have to pay attention to the racetrack and the race record. Mm -hmm. So if they've gone from say Charlestown to Gulfstream, there's going to be a a travel break plus a condition break. And so that's acceptable. But if they've been racing at parks for two years and there's a six month break in their record, that's something that you would definitely want to ask about. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, that there are some very specific questions that you should ask the trainer so often the reason given for a horse retiring is it's too slow. <laughs> and that's very often true, right? But with a little digging into the race record, you can find more information and ask more questions about it. You know, did it change owners? Did it, if it had a two month break after a specific race, you can look up those race records and read the comments. Maybe it, bucked its jockey off maybe it jumped the rail maybe you know there's there's any number of things that could have happened another really common thing is horses that race as two-year-olds they sometimes they'll race a few times in the fall of their two-year-old year and they get the winter off oftentimes they buck their shins which is not a big deal 99.999 percent of the time for the rest of their lives but they just need time to heal from that so that's something that you kind of the more race records you leave read And the more trainers that you talk to, the better you will get at that. And it's just really just experience. But really look for things to ask the trainer and don't bug them about it. But, you know, there's definitely more answers than just too slow. Yeah. And I think trying to keep some emotions out of it is really important. Like I said, their time is very limited. They can, a lot of the trainers can be like quite short. And so you really want to be organized and feel like you're asking these things as sort of fact finding, not as in a interrogation sort of way. Yeah. And we'll go into this in another episode, I'm sure. But when you're on Equibase and you do look at a race record, there's an area that you can click on chart and it will give you a PDF, which will give you a breakdown of how the race went and will include some pretty important details that can be very interesting. I would say another important thing to look at on the race performance, which is not always a deal breaker, but is something to definitely consider, is if you see a DNF, which means did not finish, on the race record. This could be for a million reasons. The horse could have lost its jockey at the gate. It could have just been pulled up because it was actually truly just slow that day. But it could have been something a little bit more salacious than that. So 
read the chart and if it seems normal, maybe just move on. But I would say if you saw a race record and the horse had five or six DNFs, I'd probably move on to another horse if that were me. But that's just my opinion and, and my risk assessment. Yeah. And then another thing to keep in mind is <clears throat> when horses change owners and trainers at the track, especially if it's at the claiming level, which is the lower level of races, the new owner and trainer don't get any information about that horse. There's not like a record that follows the horse. It's completely voluntary for any information that they get. So if you're asking about a race from three years ago with, you know, four trainers ago, they're probably not going to know. That's a great point. And then what about unraced OTTBs or unraced thoroughbreds? Those are the best ones, right? (laughs) Well, I've had experience with both. I I feel like I would prefer a horse that had raced after all of these years of experience. But I understand that some people sort of feel like, oh, well, they're just better because they've, they've not raced. Well, just because they've not raced doesn't mean that they haven't been track trained, gotten their gate card, you know, gone through all of the motions of being on a track. And quite frankly, if it's been on the track for years and it's never gotten to a race that's a bit of a question mark for me in terms of does it have a personality quip is it you know just doesn't want to do any kind of job I mean there's there's a lot to consider there so definitely a question mark in my brain some reasons that I think are okay for a horse to be unraced is that yeah it can be too slow (laughs) that's actually a thing and or maybe unmotivated to run fast. The owner might have run out of money. The owner might have died. COVID had massive track closures for a long period of time. So unraced during that time period or a big gap during that time period is likely due to COVID. So keep that in mind. And then maybe the track closed for other reasons. Winter also. And then I guess... I don't know if this would be unraced or fall under just the general race record, but if you're looking at a turf horse, generally speaking, especially up north where we are in Pennsylvania, they do not race over the winter. So that might be a reason why it races every spring through fall and then has the winter off. So something to think about there. However, some reasons to really be wary of an unraced horse. Sometimes they just can't stay sound enough to race. Maybe they're crazy. They can't get their gate card, which is required to race, which means that they are trained to break from the starting gate in a non-crazy and respectful manner. And maybe it had some sort of other major injury or wind problem or something like that. All right, so our step six, we're getting there. Six out of ten. <laughs> <clears throat> step six, we decide on trainability. What do we mean that by this? Well, I think a big question is, how is the horse to work around? Some of this goes back to first impressions. Take a close note of how the horse is handled and ask questions about it. How is the horse to train in the morning? Is it good to ride? Sometimes you can get lucky and speak to the exercise rider and they can give you some super valuable information. Like the horse is a really hard puller. Maybe it's nappy. Maybe it has a nasty buck. Most of the time, none of these apply, but it's good information to have. And 
seriously, much of this behavior will not persist once the horse leaves the track and transitions to its new home, but it's good to know. I would also just like to add in here, even when you ask these questions, if they say, oh, he's my favorite horse to ride in the barn or, you know, whatever, these training riders have a skill set that most people that ride horses do not possess. Right. Their tolerance for shenanigans and nonsense is at like a hundred, whereas I would say <laughs> that most regular riders are at like a 20. So they might be like, oh, you know, he, he really likes to work. Oh, he loves his job. And, and you're like, oh, great. He sounds like he's going to be really easy. And these are riders that get thrown onto the back of a horse and they go out there and they, they do the thing and they're used to going fast and they're used to, they're used to a lot more than we are. So yeah, you can get some good insight, but I'd also like sort of know, like Emily said, like, what's the worst thing the horse does? Does it try to turn around and go back to the barn? Is it nappy? You know, is it a little bit mean on the ground? You're going to get some information, but you have to kind of realize that these are people that their tolerance for wildness or naughtiness is probably above and beyond what a regular horse owner's is. So think about whatever they're saying and maybe amplify it a little bit. For sure. And don't be afraid to ask more questions like, Oh, he's a little bit fresh can mean a lot of different things. (laughs) Yes. So you might want to quantify some of that, especially if you don't know the person. I always like to buy horses if I can from trainers that also ride because then you can get some really good information about the horses. Oh, and there's a couple of really good ones, especially in our area that really care about where the horse is going in a second career and have already sort of pigeonholed it in a particular direction that they when you reach out to them they're like oh i think this one would make a really good eventer or you know so on and so forth so that's always fun yeah absolutely all right what's next oh it's the dreaded topic (laughs) what's that (laughs) (laughs) vices step seven vices you want to take this one (sighs) well (laughs) For starters, and I think any good reseller will tell you this and not just people at the track, these things can really come and go depending on location and what their life is like. It's kind of like, are you somebody that when you get nervous, you um, you bite your fingernails or you tap your foot or you maybe get a little shaky or whatever? Those things can really be situational. There is something to be said, though, for when you go to the track and a horse has already done its workout, if it's standing in the stall and it's weaving back and forth, it's definitely something to take note. Probably can be improved on with turnout and a regular sort of life, but might be there forever. And I think with all vices, you really have to be considerate about how you're set up to handle them. Some people think that stall walking is an absolute deal breaker and it it can be a very difficult thing to fix, but a lot of times those horses will get home and into a different sort of lifestyle and get turnout and that might disappear. But you should ask about any of the, the big ones, cribbing, weaving, stall walking. And specifically call them out. Yes. And I think it depends state by state, but I think there is some legal background behind whether or not they have to disclose those things, but they're only going to tell you what they've seen. And again, if they've never seen the horse crib, you know, or if it only cribs at feeding time, be specific. If you say, this is the horse crib, and they say no, you say, have you ever seen it grab the side of its bucket when it's eating? Just think about it. Be thoughtful about it. 
and ask as many follow-up questions as you you need to to sort of figure out whether or not this is going to be the right horse for you. Yeah, I find, you know, sometimes a good way to sort of do this evaluation is when you're talking to the trainer, maybe after they've pulled it out of the stall, you put the horse back in and no one's really paying attention to it, but you can sort of keep your eye kind of on the side and just see what it does. Also, Take note of what the stall looks like inside. Is the bedding like super churned up? Does it look like it's been running around in circles? But, you know, I think the thing to keep in mind that none of these things are necessarily a deal breaker unless they are affecting the horse's health. Like if it's cribbing so much that it's losing weight or it's wearing its teeth down or it's completely destroying your barn. And the same thing with weaving and stall walking. A lot of them with... Ulcer care, proper turnout, a good diet, a lot of grass. Some buddies. And some friends. And just, you know, a quieter lifestyle. A lot of them go away. And then the other main thing is check with your boarding barn. Because some boarding barns have very, very strict policies against cribbing in particular. And even if they say that they might let you bring a cribber in, that could add financially to you once they start cribbing on everything and you're replacing fence rails and posts and stall doors and things like that so while it might be the best horse in the world that might just be an additional thing you have to pay for down the road so on the flip side a lot of people say the best horses that they've ever had are cribbers step eight past injuries and health yeah you know we've touched on some of this kind of along the way but i always like to ask the questions So specific questions about the horse's past injuries and health. And of course, this would only apply to known history that the owner or trainer has. But specifically ask about colic, past injuries, including tendons, ligaments, hooves, etc. Ask if it's had any routine maintenance, including joint injections. A lot of trainers at the track will likely refer to this as tapping not joint injections. So they might say something like, well, I tapped his knees before his last race. And, you know, that just might be something that you write down and discuss with your vet, or maybe that's an area that you'd want to look at a little more closely when your vet looks at him. Also, make sure to ask about the horse's wind and breathing. Does it roar or make any sort of noise at speed? And I will say that unless your goal is rated hunters or top level eventing, roaring is unlikely to really be a deal breaker, but you would still want to scope the horse to get a full veterinary opinion. And I think a lot of vets would tell you that until you get to a certain level of work and exercise that like maybe you'd consider doing some sort of a tie forward or tie back on a horse and to help with that, the horse still might make a sound of some sort, but it's really more related to like their performance and less about the sound i think with hunters it's a little bit more about the aesthetic but i've heard that they're not really supposed to be able to knock you down points for that but um yeah really Mm -hmm. Hmm. i always thought it was concerned unsoundness right i'll have to talk to my hunter friends about it there you go (laughs) (laughs) all right so now we've covered that of asking the trainer specifically about any injuries or health issues of the horse Step nine is what about vetting? The first step I like to do is ask the trainer if the horse has had any prior x-rays taken. We would always advise new buyers or any buyers really to set up a pre-purchase exam. 
If you're doing this at the racetrack, it can be a little bit tricky because you'll need a veterinarian that is licensed to work at that track. So the best thing you can do other than asking for recommendations from other people that have bought horses from that track would be to try to find a track vet that does not service the horse's owner or trainer. I have done this in a pinch and it all worked out for me, but just a word of caution there. If the horse flexes off in any joints when the vet is looking at it, it might be a good idea to x-ray them. And really, if you can, be present at the pre-purchase exam if at all possible. Many track vets also have x-ray packages as well, and they're often cheaper than sport horse vets, so that's a little bit of a bonus. Yeah, definitely. And I think also to use the x-rays as like a, a, a starting point, not, oh, I'm just looking for a problem, but I'm just looking to see, oh, is there a little something in there I need to be concerned about? Or, you know, the same kind of questions that you would ask if you were doing a, a vetting that was not at the track. But yeah, it's definitely a little bit trickier to deal with vets at the track. There are a couple of people that I know that are riders who are also vets that work at tracks in our area. And that's always a bonus when you can have someone who's extremely familiar with doing track vettings and is also a rider. And so you sort of have that crossover effect of feeling like you've got a little bit of an ally in the situation. Yeah, for sure. So did you and have you always vetted your horses that you bought off the track? To be completely honest, other than the horse I bought as a teenager, I mostly did not. Resale margins are really very small. And I personally was comfortable using my knowledge and trusted connections to generally not do a full pre-purchase exam on my horses unless there was a known issue or something stood out to me. I am also fairly comfortable with high levels of risk. And I also had one main rule, which was always buy horses I wouldn't mind keeping if I couldn't sell them on. Well, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were lucky enough to have a facility that we had turnout fields where horses could just live and be horses if we needed them to be, you know, and absolutely, you know, for every 10 you get one might not be exactly what you were hoping for. And essentially, I feel like most of them you can find a great purpose for, but you know, there's always one that you might get burned on or that just might not work out the way you wanted to. And you have to definitely be willing to take them on as a long-term resident in that situation. Yeah. And sometimes they just need to be chucked out in the field for a few months and you bring them back and they're totally fine. Oh yeah. So for sure. Um, and then this is kind of a, a tougher subject to talk about, but <laughs> have you ever gotten burned on a horse that you wish you had vetted or just gotten burned on a horse that you thought was, um, represented correctly and, <laughs> uh, thoughtfully? Yeah. I had one real particular incident where I bought a horse sight unseen after seeing a jog video and speaking to the trainer on the phone. I asked all of my questions. I took notes, including, does the horse have any wind issues or make a respiratory noise? The trainer had had the horse its whole career, which was about 10 races. It arrived. We took it up to the round pen and let it loose. And my first thought was, holy crap, look at that trot. <laughs> that was quickly replaced with, what is that noise? The poor horse started making like the most unbelievable noise from its throat. It sounded like an accordion. I'd never heard anything like it. Right. It was like in and out. Yeah. It was like a high pitched noise. Yeah. Like it was unmistakable. It was very loud. And the horse quickly became very labored. 
After trotting for like maybe a few minutes. Yeah, it was not not very long. We took him back to the barn and it really took a long time for his breathing to return to normal. So I had my vet scope him and he had a congenital defect in his throat conformation, which was also coupled with a raging infection and he had a paralyzed epiglottis. There's no way the trainer didn't know that something was wrong. I contacted him and he claimed he had no idea. And like, maybe this happened on the trailer ride down or, you know, it was ridiculous. I think I even gave him the opportunity to do right by, you know, refund the money so I can put it towards his vet care, things like that. And it was a no go. So we tried our best to treat the infection. I think we did a twice daily throat spray for like a month. And with all his issues, surgery really was not possible. Because um, there was a ton of scar tissue that had already built up from all of the treatment that he had obviously been getting his whole life. Well, I think from the infection, yeah. there was just a ton of scar tissue. And even removing that, he still had two other things that would need to be operated on. And it was just, we had one of the best, if not the best, throat surgeons look at him and basically said that it wasn't surgical. So I ended up turning him out and... He lost a ton of condition very quickly. And then finally, I think Neve, you saw him fall down in the field when he was trying to canter after some of his buddies. So we ended up euthanizing him. We were able to donate him to a vet hospital and they were able to use him like as donation to other horses for a study. So at least there was that, but it was a very, very sad end. He was a lovely horse. I had high hopes for him. So yeah, it does happen even to people that do this for a living and do this every day. You in that process. Well, I think it's also how you learn how you build your network. Unfortunately, yeah, absolutely. You kind of find, kind of find out like who you don't want to buy horses from and who you really want to buy horses from, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and I think going into step ten, I mean, I think this is something that goes to any horse that you're buying, but learning how to trust your gut. Yeah, step ten is last lasting impressions. So. Going back to our first impressions, how do they compare to how you feel about the horse now? Like, are you excited? What does your gut say? Really take note of anything else that the trainer mentions, even if it seems kind of small in your general feelings. Um, If you decide to proceed, now is a good time to negotiate price and discuss um, a vetting. And remember, cash is king, and the quicker and easier you are as a buyer, the best chance you have of scoring a great deal. I also want to add here that communication is also very important. So when you are a buyer, make sure if you decide to pass on a horse that you do it very quickly and inform the seller as quickly as you can. That you're moving on. It does not take long to send a quick text message, say, hey, thank you for your time. I'm not going to proceed with horse xyz and that way they know and also a simple thank you for your time goes a long way because you never know you might want to buy a horse from them in the future and uh, it's funny we didn't actually mention this in the beginning but if you're looking at a horse at the track and you found the listing or the trainer information say through like a a service like canter or something like that a lot of those services will be very specific about how the trainer wants to be contacted If the trainer says text only between this hour and this hour or calls only between 4 a.m. and 10 a.m., please respect 
yeah. what they've asked for because sometimes you're dealing with people that English is not necessarily their first language or they have very limited time or they have a second job outside of the track, whatever the case might and be. And they just have a different schedule they than They have most a different people. schedule and they just really, they will respect you for following that very simple thing that they've asked for. And like Emily said, keeping everything as sort of concise as possible and thanking them for their time and... Um, you know, it, it really does go a long way. And it also establishes you as someone who's not, you know, a maniac that you're <laughs> somebody that you're not there to waste somebody's time. And l- listen, like getting on the backside is a little bit of a process to begin with. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a later episode, <laughs> but you know, y- you want to make sure that you're, you're making a lasting impression on a trainer that, okay, maybe they don't have the horse for me right now, but I'd love to come back and see some of their horses next year. Or you say to them, listen, I'm looking for this. And then they say, I'm going to keep you in mind when this guy, or you see a horse that really catches your eye. And this has definitely happened to us before you say, let me know when that one stops racing. Let me know (laughs) when you're done with that one. And that's a great way to establish that kind of relationship where the trainer knows your name, you know, their name. That's how you end up with too many horses. (laughs) That's how you end up with too many horses. But we're just trying to give you some good tips and tricks. And, you know, these sort of do strongly relate to buying horses off the backside. But you can take our buyer's guide and apply it to any purchase situation. You can take it to go look at a horse at a reseller or a horse that, or somebody who just has one horse for sale. It's really just a way to sort of formulate a process for you to ask the right questions, become a good buyer and establish good relationships with sellers so that even if you don't find the right horse at your first shot out, that you um, will define yourself as somebody who is not a tire kicker (laughs) and that you have resources that you're able to find a good horse for yourself. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Sounds good. Um, We will, where are we going to put the uh, buyer's guide? That will be on ottbmarket.com. Okay. We will post a link to the infographic, which will be a downloadable PDF. Emily is also going to make a really cool form that will be something that you can fill out when you go look it's at horses. so cool. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you guys have really enjoyed learning how we think about the horse buying process and that these tips are valuable for anybody that's going to look at horses in the future. We really appreciate you guys listening to another episode of OTTB on Tap. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at OTTB underscore on tap on Instagram. You can contact us also via email at OTTB on tap at gmail.com. And then find us on Facebook at OTTB Market. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're enjoying our content. And please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find our podcast. We really appreciate your feedback and look forward to hearing from you. And if you have any topics that you would love for us to cover or anybody that you would like for us to interview, please reach out, email us, hit us up on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you guys. Till next time. Bye. Bye.